Well, we're on our seventh week, going through Romans. Thank you for being faithful, being here. Not always the case. Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we are very grateful for these cookies. Thank you very much for the Bible study as well. The time in your apostles' writing is always such a treat. We'd ask that you would bless our lives in it. In your son's name, amen. Oft times, like famous passages in Romans, um, you go to them out of nothing, you go out of a discussion into the famous passage, not from chapter 1 through where we are now, 13. People jump into chapter 9, people jump into chapter 8, people jump into chapter 7, they jump into chapter, we're talking political science, you jump into chapter 13, but you jump into it. Paul has at the end of 10 and 11 moved himself from his argument with the Jew Gentile problem and proving the need for what the gospel is to them and how it has rearranged everything. He does it in other books as well. And then in chapter 12 he started to lay out what our life was. I appeal to you therefore brethren by the mercies of God and again, we jump into that verse from the outside. Always very edifying to jump into it. But we forget that he had just mentioned that the mercies of God, back in 32 of chapter 11, God has consigned all men to disobedience that he might have mercy upon all. And then a few verses later, I appeal to you by the mercies. And then he starts talking to you about the Christian life about how we live, not as Jew and not as Gentile, but as Christians. And there's a wonderful section from verse 9 of chapter 12 down through the end of the chapter, verse 21, where he goes through that, let love be genuine, hold fast to what is good, brotherly affection, zeal, aglow, serve the Lord, hospitality, don't take vengeance, live in harmony, all sorts of wonderful stuff that you're supposed to take care of. Not the kind of stuff that makes you distinct from your fellow believer in the church, different measures of faith, we talked about that, but the stuff that makes you all the same, the way you are. At that point, the next verse, chapter 1, chapter 13, verse 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Now, there wasn't any chapters in the book, initially. There weren't any verse markings in the book. This was his next topic, but it's coming for the people who heard it in Rome for the first time, someone, one of the elders reading it. Um, that's what they heard, that wonderful obligation you have to certain things. And then he tells you what your relationship ought to be to the civil authorities, and in his case, the pagan civil authorities, the Roman Empire. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, he who resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Now, you were told to control certain things in the last chapter. And now you're told that somebody else is in control of other things. And instead of you going and doing certain things, whatever you see fit to do in your Christian life, the government has stepped in, pagan, not as wise as it should be, at an age when Christians were going to be persecuted, St. Paul himself, unto death by Caesar. But in the main, Paul had had a reasonably good experience with Roman authorities. Um, Sergius Paulus, others, uh, proconsuls, even Caesar in his first trial, Lats them off. Festus, Felix. They haven't, haven't been, they haven't been malevolent to Paul at all. But that's not so much the point, as that this is not our point. Here we are being controlled. When we, we have to look at the Christian life as to what governs us in a particular set of time and a particular arena of our life. The government governs us in the civic demand, that which is, if you're looking at the nature of all civil governments, is they police people's relationships to each other, how, how they would usurp 
one another's possessions or powers or properties or rights or whatever it is. The government is there to sort that out, to try to wage war on certain social problems that arise from men, evil men living together in close con contact. So he's telling the Christians that they are there by God's institution. And we sometimes think that we want to be there in government as much. We want to be as much in charge of it as we are of the church. Uh, and we are a free country. We have the vote. We, have, we can express ourselves regarding that. But that wasn't always the case. And for a th thousand some odd years, nobody had that kind of control over the government. It wasn't planned by the Christian faith to have Christians in charge of the civil government. It, bad things happened when they did. Or people who claimed to be Christians got to be in charge. Nothing worse than having a Christian have the sword. Because suddenly people of another doctrine look like ripe for the uh, burning uh, stake. God has wanted civil authorities to restrain the wicked in the world around you. That's all the governing authorities can do. Just like parents can only make reasonably good citizens out of their children, but they can't make them holy. You can only pound good civic sense into the child. The state can only make you afraid enough about running a stoplight that you're not going to do it. They're going to raise that fine, they're going to put that camera up there, they're going to have the patrol car, whatever it is. But the Christian is told to fit into that. To fit into that willingly. They've been instituted by God. No authority exists that is not from God. All governments <clears throat> So you mean even the Bolsheviks after the revolution? Well, yes, even the Bolsheviks after the revolution. Even those sans culottes in France in the 1790s? Yes, even they. Even the American revolutionaries who threw off their God-appointed king. Whoever is in charge is supposed to be, not by some decretive elements where, where God planned that the Bolsheviks should be in charge, but that governments are always necessary in human society. And we as Christians are to participate in the governments in a way that does not cause a disruption to that. Like when it tells us about pastors, let them do this not by constraint but willingly, for then it would be of no value to you. Um, all governments, the church, the family, the state, um, have, have a job to do, and your willful submission is your willful submission is um, um, what God is asking for. Because those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of him who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. Now, this is St. Paul writing about Caesar, who was, even though he might not have been persecuting Christians this early, was still a nut job. Okay, the, 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 there is a, um, may have still been Claudius at this time, but still, not, not, a, not a great stretch of Caesar's. He is God's servant for your good. We are trying to make, anyone who governs, even if they're governing poorly, is hoping to attain to peace in their realm of government. A bad parent, a bad boss, a bad governor, he is trying to make peace. And those that submit themselves to his rule, if they're not being told to not do what he's telling them, in other words, we always default to a higher authority. If God says, no, don't do that. And the seer says, well, I want you to kill your neighbor. Well, I'm sorry, can't do that. People often wonder, people are, a little warning about Christian listening. One of the basic temptations you are under is a passage like this, is to always think of situations where you don't have to do it. Okay? Try thinking of all the situations where you do. Because there are a lot more of those. And you're always planning. You know, if he were confiscating my guns and my children or something like that. You know, you'll make yourself a, 
some sort of martyr for the cause. We're not facing, well, we might be facing the gun thing soon, but um, there's a, stuff happens, but you're not really supposed to be thinking in those terms. It's being told to you because you need to listen to what God is saying about civil authorities. I appointed them, they are my servants, and their punishment is for your good. And if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. He is the servant of God to execute his wrath on the wrongdoer. This is one of the things that was nice when you keep reading in context, because back in chapter 12 it said, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. As it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. No, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals upon his head. That's what I'm supposed to do because I know the cops are going to put him away. Or send him to the electric chair. Whatever it is you think is a valid punishment, um, they are there. They are that wrath of God. Now, there's, of course, also bigger wrath of God, but God says, let me have the wrath but at the same time, I have to grant that the government's punishment of criminal elements is the wrath of God as well. Therefore, one must be subject. Got that? Therefore, one must be subject, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Not just to avoid the punishment, but by agreement. Not just because they have the sword, not just because they can reward and punish, but because you should think this way. Your conscience should be on the side of making governments work. Um, there's temptations when you see bad governments in action, you know, be it another country or your own or some mom and her kid at Walmart where you just say, well, I can't see you know, do something with that kid. <laughs> and you want to step in and be the UN or, or, uh, um, or Sylvester Stallone. You want to deal with it somehow. Well, we, we're not merely, we are, part of our task is not merely that we get our way but that what God is trying to do in the world as he tries to restrain wickedness, um, these natural governments, and the state is a natural government, because it's a natural government because, unlike, not like a parent is natural, they had the baby, and so there's a debt naturally there, but with the state is because man is social, because man is going to live together, and he will not always live together in family units, he will live together in units he does not feel any other governmental debt to, it's going to be anarchy unless government arises. So anytime a city would develop, a government would develop in the city. You, you, you won't get a government if you, if, um, if, if you have a bunch of people living, you know, 25 miles apart on the plain of Canada, they're not going to drive, you know, hours to get together so they can govern themselves. They'll just ignore each other. But you put them together tightly compacted, then the effects of my choices start to affect you. And then somebody wants to go take it to the magistrate if something's wrong. Well, well who do I talk to? Well, someone that can beat you up. Someone that can punish you. Um, that was the nature of Roman, it was called imperium. Uh, it's one of the greatest images. The fascists get the, their image from this thing called the fasces, which was the imperium of the lictor. And uh, you were awarded um, these bundles of rods around an axe, double-bladed axe, bundles of rods, which meant and the guy, the magistrate, would have X number of lictors who carried these things, which were him with a bunch of baseball bats to beat up people and an axe to kill them. Okay? You had the power to punish and the power to execute. That was the nature of uh, the fasces. And it expressed the nature of government directly. They literally carried these things around uh, as evidence of their magistrate's uh, power. 
And this is the government that St. Paul is dealing with. But we should, for the sake of conscience, that your meditation is not, and this temptation for we is a Western American, wild and woolly West, Scots-Irish background, for heaven's sake, who's going to rule me? Just the clan. And, uh, and not even then. You know, you're just sort of very individualistic. And uh, we have trained our conscience to think along lines of William Wallace screaming freedom with his face painted blue. Um, well, it was the English, and we have to understand it's always right to kill the English. But um, <laughs> apart from that, biblically, you might want to struggle with William Wallace. Okay? Now, I was named for Robert the Bruce. So, uh, came after William Wallace. Robert the Bruce. Um, my middle name is Bruce. Um, so, I should be all sorts of ready to. And I like the fact that at Bannockburn he defeated the English. And I struggle with that, though, because my conscience, I wanted my conscience to be clearly in favor of Paul. So I think that the American Revolution was wrong. I, couldn't, I can't find a way to justify it, biblically. The war between the states, that was okay, because there was a justifiable, um, there wasn't an overlord that was not self-created. They entered into an agreement, they thought they could exit. Times had changed, wars were fought, people died, things were said. Um, not too sure about William Wallace, but again, duh, because of my conscience, I want my conscience to be in agreement with those who God has instituted to bring peace to a situation. And to the degree I can make their job easier and my life more peaceful, I obey them because when I do what is good, I receive his approval. I do what is bad, I get smacked. It's just simple. And he says, not just because of avoiding God's wrath in it, but for the sake of your conscience. For the same reason. For the same reason. You also pay taxes. Oh man, I haven't done them yet. And I hate them. I hate doing them. I don't mind paying them. I hate doing them. They should just say, you know, you don't have to do them if you just pay us this much. I'd do it. I'd pay them. I'd pay thousand dollars. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to do a thing. You don't have to file anything. Just give us a thousand dollars. You go, honey, let's do it. And she's gonna say, no, you're doing the taxes. Coupon. Because you had a coupon on it. Probably I'd have it paid fifteen hundred. Fifteen hundred, and I'll be looking at it. I did the taxes, and we paid fifteen hundred. For the same reason. For the same reason, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God. Attending to this very thing. Even where they wear red coats and are ex extorting an unjust stamp tax, or on your tea, for heaven's sake, let's start a war. No, I guess not. We should pay our taxes. Pay all of them their dues. Jesus Christ has a very charmingly uninvolved, politically uninvolved message. I don't think it's wrong to be politically involved or have a political opinion. I like election years. They're sort of exciting, but it's people up playing at their, at their government. But Christ doesn't seem to have a whole lot of concern about what they're about, because when it gets to what you're about, it's list like 9, 12, 9, and following. Let your love be genuine. That's what the instruction to you is. It's not for you to make sure that homosexuals don't get married, or what else can be, or that our taxes are more at the level of the tithe of ancient Israel. I, I, pay all of them their dues. The Lord says, why don't you just render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and the things to God that are God's? That's what we're talking about. The things that God expected your obedience on are X. The things the state expects and God expects your obedience on to the state are Y. We like to get them all mushed together. Where people whose lives are not in obedience to the Lord are <laughs> the most conservative believers you know um, are wonderfully moralizing when they get 
to the state. The state can't expect my obedience because it's wicked. Um, Obama, I'm not a big fan, but he has a loose profession of Christendom. I don't, you know, have any notion of which, whether it's real or not. But he's not Caesar. You know, this is Caesar. Ministers of God. One of the worst times for Christians, true believers, not like the Middle Ages where fake Christians were killing other fake Christians of different groups, but real Christians were dying in the first century because of their faith, and it was faithful faith. And they died well. These are the ministers of God, attending to this very thing, collecting taxes. Pay all of them their dues. Taxes to whom taxes are due. Revenue to whom revenue is due. Respect to whom respect is due. Honor to whom honor is due. Just in case you wanted to squeak out, well, I don't think that's a tax. Okay, no, it's revenue. Just shut up. Just do it. Yes, Your Honor. Yes, Your Majesty. That's what you say. O King, as Daniel would say, live forever. Owe no one anything. Because this comes around. It's just, it came out of middle of chapter 12. It was how we function in the church. Then it was how we function as individuals. Now we function as citizens. And we're back again to how, what we're actually moved by ethically. We do not change the ethics of this world by trying to pass legislation that will change the ethics of this world. We owe no one anything. We make sure we have everything paid up to date. We pay the government for everything that we're supposed to pay the government for. We, we've comported ourselves as good citizens. The thing we should be concerned with, of having a debt of, is to accept to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. So the one thing, if anything I'm in debt about, it ought to be love. That I feel the need to pay out more of that all the time because I have a sense of owing it to people. Uh, it's probably a figure of speech. It's not like, oh, you owe me more love. Um, it's not like a, a claim that could be laid at your door. It's probably a, 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 a very charming way of describing it. Oh, no one anything except the debt of love. Except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. The reason is it can occupy us in our ethics by pursuing this more than pursuing anything else. Let Caesar deal with the wars. Let your boss deal with the economics to the degree you have a boss. Or let your parents deal with whatever parents deal with. Something. Um, yeah, but you, you wouldn't know. Yeah. <laughs> well, she did. <laughs> she did all the work. You're supposed to be busy owing love to everybody. Loves his neighbor, has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not kill, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment, any other commandment, list some out of the ten, are summed up in this sentence, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, that's basically sort of the backward approach, oh, not kind of a backward, when Christ was asked, what were the greatest commandments? He says, love the Lord your God, second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. Neither are in the Ten Commandments, which is interesting. Um, but we have in this task of Christianity, the faith. Remember we were talking about faith through the first X number of chapters, where it's turning toward God, in love towards God, in seeking God, away from self, away from the world, away from this, and we turn towards God. Uh, we covered it the last couple chapters ago, for from him and through him and to him are all things. That's where our direction is. So, love the Lord your God with all your body, soul, and strength, and which, which takes care of your faith. The second takes care of your life. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Everything is taken care of. All, you know, the, all the commandments demand ethically. Anything you'd be expected to do by God, if you were concentrating on how you were going to pay this debt of love, you'd be taken care of. Because love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. It's the new covenant. This is the ethic of the new covenant. 
where something written on your heart, as Jeremiah prophesied in Jeremiah 31, something written on your heart, does, you would not have to tell your neighbor, know the Lord, for you would all know the Lord, from the least of you to the greatest. That's the nature of this covenant. We have all found God. We all sought him. We all encourage in evangelism others to seek him. And we love one another. And it accomplishes all the ethics that God would want to see you accomplished. Besides this, you know, what hour it is. Besides this. Hmm. Because sometimes we can just find ourselves wading through another verse of the Bible. You ever get like that with just another verse in the Bible? And I've read this chapter before, and yeah, I know it says great things. And one more comment about grace and faith and God's beloved love and stuff. I can't take it anymore, and you want to put a bullet through your head. Um, you get tired, tired of the edification. You ever get tired of edification? Platitudes. Yeah, platitudes, maxims for life. Um, wisdom. Wisdom, other stuff. I hate that. Thank you. And you say to yourself, boy, I'm sure glad this isn't long two chapters. This is chapter a chapter and a half. Because I'm done here at verse 10. Besides this, you know what hour it is, how it is full time now for you to wake from sleep. Oh, that's my verse. Got that, Jeffries? Wake from sleep. Wake, wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Now, we are told to do a lot of things. It seems that we get, and we sort of, we hit my age, we get to realize, oh my gosh, I could see death from here. Suddenly you realize, I am mortal, the train is picking up speed, I know where the end has got to be on the track, it's coming quicker, and every week, I don't know how long weeks are for you guys, they're really fast for me. <laughs> a lot faster than your weeks. Anybody just drag on. All the time in the world to take care of things. We're supposed to say, besides this, besides this basic, these are good things, you think you might want to do them? This is a great way to view ethics, you might think you might want to consider that? Um, could check your conscience about the nature of governments? Okay, yeah, alright. Realize every day you live is one day less. Salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. He's saying, besides this, consider that time's running out for all of us. Um, I always liked it back when I was California. Californian Christians were a special, a special breed. And they're into generally the end of the world. And a lot. At least a lot of the Calvary Chapel because types. Because they're going to break off into the ocean. Well, they, they, they actually... Is that why? They had, they had big, strong hopes at Calvary Chapel. The 1988 was the end. Mm -hmm. They were sure of it. And since Chuck Smith was a pre-trib rapture, he believed they would be gone by 81. Um, and he announced that at church. He was wrong. But they're into that sort of thing. And I always like to tell people, you do know you're going to be dead. The end of your world is in 60 years. I can prophesy. <laughs> it's coming to a close, and you, I wish we'd all been ready. Well, you are being told to get ready. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. Let us cast off, then, the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. It's like getting up in the morning. I don't know if you're a morning person, but it's, it's telling you to be a morning person. The night's over. Daylight's coming. Get out of bed. Throw off the covers. Put your clothes on. Go to work. That's basically it. So they're not talking about an initial Conversion. salvation of belief. They're talking about right. salvation. Life in that. The, the time, is, the salvation that you are waiting for is closer than when you first believed. So realize the daylight's on at hand. That, that, that things 
the works of darkness, he asks you to uh, cast off, put on the armor of light, conduct ourselves becomingly as in the day, not in reveling and drunkenness, not in debauchery and licentiousness, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. It's again, this whole, this whole call is to leave certain things behind, putting on, putting off, coming to a newness of life in Christ, all sorts of uh, things of drawing nearer to God. If I'm drawing nearer to God in Christ, he's trying to motivate the Christians to say, you do know that it's getting up and leaving behind something. You do know that if the blankets were the works of the flesh, you get out of the blankets and you don't just lie abed in some sort of depressive, self-cookie-eating uh, um, um, lifestyle. I hope I didn't describe anybody here. Have a cookie. Conduct yourselves becomingly as in the day. The metaphor is, he's pushing the metaphor pretty aggressively. Get up, get dressed, go to work. Be becoming, like you would if the lights were on. Because you know that late at night, and this is how, even though I have immense dignity, that I, I, I won't leave my room without my clothes on. I sometimes, late at night, the it wife goes, did you do something? And I have to get up, put the robe on, go do something somewhere else in this massive house in the middle of the night. And I'm grateful as I shuffle down the hall in my slippers and robe that it's nighttime. The lights are out. It's nighttime. Because there's a becoming behavior that daytime offers to, that you have to pay attention to. That all the lights are on, suddenly you know people can see inside the house, or you can walk into, run into people all the time. You're to conduct yourself becomingly as in the day. Not like you're a party animal at the night. Getting away with the evil men love darkness because their deeds are evil. There's a hiddenness. If I realize, and probably if you say, what part of the metaphor am I supposed to get? Because I'm not really picking up on the getting out of bed thing. Realize it's daytime. What ought, to you, ought you be doing in the daytime? This, this in your life, it's a daytime. Um, it's a, um, a special... Uh, productive part of life rather than serving yourself with the least amount of effort in your robe and slippers you know how it is when you see somebody at Walmart with the pajamas on it's everywhere yes it's everywhere but these are people that didn't realize sun's up other people are out Put your clothes on. And it's not because it's racy. It's because it's slovenly. It's sloppy. It's, uh, um, it is you taking interest in yourself rather than in your obligation for everything else. When you enter the day, it's when everybody else is up and everybody else is doing and everybody else has, has expectations of your provision for them, your participation in their life, and how you comport yourself, how good you are, and two, how uh, much of a benefit you can be. Am I letting you slip? I'll turn it back to you. <laughs> Chapter 14. <clears throat> As for the man who was weak in faith, Paul is really good about just when we think we could, oh, that's good enough, that's good enough. I could go to the end of chapter 12. That's the Christian life there. But it's amazing what we can think of that will become a problem. Like our relationship with the state. Well, okay, forget that. He took care of that. And now, once you get a group of people that's together, and they've, they've divided the church up, and people are doing different jobs, and everybody is being taught to be this way at the end of chapter 9, other problems occur. As for the man who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not for disputes over opinions. That is probably the most reversed verse in the history of Christendom. When you meet a man weak in the faith, you barely welcome him, and only for disputes over opinions. 
I mean, that's, that's why he's wrong, isn't it? That's, uh, that's what wrong people are good for, correcting. I, I, I go through life all the time dealing with people who are wrong. What am I supposed to do? I'm supposed to welcome him, but not for disputes over opinions. We believe, one believes he may eat anything, while the weak man eats only vegetables. <laughs> Let not him who eats, oh, oop, I disobeyed it. Let not him who eats despise him or her who abstains. And let not him who abstains pass judgment on him who eats. For God has welcomed him. Go back to verse 1. You're supposed to welcome him, but not for disputes over opinions, because God has welcomed him. Because correctness of opinion. Because God has picked us up at all sorts of places in life. Ages, places, circumstances, backgrounds, weaknesses, and has forgiven us of our sins and is rebuilding us back in chapter 12, 1, trying to renew our minds that we may prove what is the will of God. We're in all sorts of different places. All sorts of different places. And some people eat only vegetables. They're vegan. For all sorts of reasons. In this case, it might not be vegetarianism because it's bad to kill animals, but because of the idol worship and the meat markets and so forth and so on. But the weak man is the guy who abstains. Now he's weak in faith. He's not, you know, sure you look at a vegan, you go weak in other ways too. But if they're weak in faith, the Christian who eats only vegetables, for that, you might say, um, uh, cultural limitation because of their view of things, because they have not learned as much as you. It's a matter of knowledge. They're weak in faith, not, not uh, susceptible. They're, we're going to find out about their susceptibility, but, but it's not, they're not weak because they're susceptible. So the weak have the limits in this situation. Just because I know, I can tell from this verse, that the strong guy eats meat, and the weak guy eats only vegetables, so I know who's right. Go back to verse 1. Doesn't matter. Welcome him. Welcome the vegetable eater. The herbivore, I guess. The omnivore has got to keep his mouth shut. Busy welcoming this person, because God's welcomed that herbivore. But tragically, also, the people who abstain sometimes think they're the stronger ones because we have that whole Gnostic thing going where doing without is somehow sanctified. And so they're busy thinking you're weak for eating the meat or eat, smoking the cigar or whatever it is you do. They also should refer back to verse 1. doesn't matter. If you think you're the strong one, you've got to obey verse 1. Okay? If you don't obey verse 1 because of this higher righteousness you have, I eat the meat, and the guy says, I don't eat the meat, both think well of themselves and are getting into a theological fight over it. If they don't listen to verse 1, that means their fight is not for the truth of God. If it were the truth of God, if it was the seeking of God and his righteousness, you'd obey verse 1. Right? He told you what to do, oh man. Be nice to each other. Because God's welcomed the other one. If you don't obey that and you obey these other things, God wants me to eat meat. God doesn't want me to eat meat. You know, those are just ciphers or covers for I want to do what I want to do and I want to be bossy to other people. Simple. Because I don't want to do what God wants me to do because I won't do verse 1. And most of 13. Chapter 13. People who are into still serving themselves. Remember, faith, this axis of faith, is the pursuit of God and his righteousness, who he is, what he has said, what he has promised, what he has governed. That's what I seek in faith. I don't seek me and my way. 
And if I find that I don't want to obey verse 1, but I want to take an opportunity to rag on somebody who doesn't live the same kind of cultural life as I do, then I'm not a person of faith. I'm falling back. I'm falling back to serving myself rather than serving and seeking God. Because God's busy welcoming the guy. Either the meat eater or the vegetable eater, he's busy in welcoming him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld, for the master is able to make him stand. So the standing, you're supposed to presume it. It isn't necessarily true that somebody who lives differently than you is busy standing. We are talking about believers who are. Believers that have been welcomed by God in their behavior. Uh, it's not like, well, yeah, I'm a prostitute, but the Lord has welcomed me. Don't welcome bring me in for disputes over opinions. No, they're not standing. They're not they're not, they're not being welcomed by the Lord. But we're talking about things in which that welcome is possible. One man esteems one... And interestingly enough, food doctrine has followed the church all the way down through its history. And this next one, one man esteems one day is better than another, while another man esteems all days alike. That's probably bigger than the food thing in Protestant Christianity. Do you celebrate Michaelmas, or do you celebrate the seventh Sunday of Advent? Uh, what is it called? Septu something or other. Christmas, the Sabbath on the right day. Um, because those who are Sabbatarians, they can be uh, a pretty rough lot. I think wars have been fought over this one. Um, if you think that um, the, the, the Saturday Sabbatarians, like the Adventists, their doctrine, I don't know if many Sabbath, uh, Adventists that believe this now, Sunday worship of the Sabbath is the mark of the beast in Adventist theology. Okay? Because the Roman Catholic Church was the beast, and it promulgated the Sunday, Lord's Day worship as the Sabbath, Therefore, that is the mark. And if you worship on Sunday, you are taking the mark of the beast. Welcome. <laughs> Welcome to our church. Not for disputes over opinions. And everybody, all the rest of the Christians, since we got the lion's share, most all of us worship on Sunday, and we know. And the Adventists are the strange little sect. Who knows? We can always rent their buildings, so they're never using it on Sunday. <laughs> Do we welcome them? Now, there is a right position, wrong position. Paul is on the side of, hey, the days don't matter. I have these quotes from Colossians 2, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, first subject, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Galatians 4.10, you observe days, months, seasons, and years. I'm afraid I've labored over you in vain. Paul has a dim view of people who calendarize their religion, like somehow the celebration of special days, other than, you know, your birthday's fine, I'm sure. Um, and I celebrate Christmas, but I only celebrate Christmas as a cultural holiday. It's not part of Christianity. It has all this Christian meaning attached to it by all sorts of apostasy down through centuries, I can't recognize Christianity in that. Bhutan tree worship. <laughs> but we still like the tree. We hang things on it. Get presents. Here's the phrase. Let everyone be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. He also who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. Well, he who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Because when God has welcomed both positions, they are treating the position not as a superiority, not as a point of disdaining the other, but a place where they can thank God for what they have in it. 
My father always taught on this while we were growing up on uh, John the Baptist and Jesus Christ. And he said, here were two very different guys, related. One guy, kind of a nut job, out there in the wilderness, uh, camel hair, locust wild honey, Jesus' seamless garment, the best parties, 160 gallons of wine. <laughs> the Lord looks at John and says, no man born of woman is greater than John. John looks at Christ and said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. You had two vastly different cultures. And Jesus points it out and says, You saw John in the wilderness. You said he had a demon. And the Son of Man comes and you said he's a wine-burber and a glutton. You know, but wisdom will be known by all of her children. We, we are as Christians, regardless of what we choose to thank God for and abstain from and take on, the danger happens... The danger happens, and we're going to get into that in a second, when the welcome can't exist, even though God has welcomed both kinds of Christians. Two, when the person at greater liberty sets a bad example for the person who was weaker. Or conversely, the person who abstains gets their knickers in a twist and starts making rules they don't ever stumble somebody else. You can't, you can't, and the weak person can never stumble you. They can just make rules for you because they want to restrict your life as well. The guy at liberty can stumble the guy who is um, tighter because he says, hey, we can go to the bars. The guy says, but I always thought the bars were bad. Yeah, but we can go. We're Christians. All things are lawful. Off he goes to the bars, and because he still has a view of it as wrong, he is condemned by his action. I can lead a person into stumbling by having more liberty than he does. He can only create the problem of legalism. Two different errors. Um, none of us lives to himself. None of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So that, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Remember that back in chapter 11. For from him, through him, and to him are all things. Faith is pointing us to him. Why do we get caught up in busying ourselves with not finding him, busying ourselves with trying to take over the nation, busying ourselves with everybody else's choices about their life, setting a, either a, a threatening example or a restrictive example, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord, both of the living and the dead. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we all shall stand before the judgment seat of God. Not only telling you, don't do this, these are the reasons you don't do this, this is the direction your mind should be in Christ. And then he threatens you. If you can't learn it, you all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. So each of us shall have to give account of himself to God. You know, so you might want, just like I said earlier, back in, uh, besides this, you know what hour it is? You might want to get up, get busy, acting in a becoming way. Do you realize that you've got a lot more work dealing with what you're supposed to do than with all the things you're not supposed to do? All the worrying that you're doing about the state of the nation? Forget that. You've got a lot of love to do. You owe a debt of love to a lot of people. You're out there needing to live in harmony with one another. How am I going to get all this stuff done? How do I welcome all these people that are different than I am? i got stuff to do. Because I'm going to be judged on the last day. Individually, singly, severally, you. Regardless of what your view is of whether, you know, I know people, some people uh, recently have talked to me about the doctrine that says that there's, God does not hold Christian sins against them. Well, this is a verse that so each of us shall have to give an account of himself to God. We are going to be judged. And if we...
pay attention not just down to the net, when I said, if you're interested in correcting the person who has the wrong view of vegetables, but you're not interested in obeying verse 1, you're not really interested in obeying God. You're not really interested in standing with confidence on his day of judgment because you weren't about obeying him. You were about being right. You were about, you know, bowling over somebody or making him dot all the I's and cross all the T's to be in your group. So they agree with you. Um, you've got a lot to do to stand well yourself, to prove that God has made you stand, your master, that God has welcomed you. Because we're always sometimes thinking of us in the state of one or the other treating somebody else some way, rather than the person who is so treated. Has God welcomed you? Have you, whatever you have chosen to live like, whatever measure you have put in place. Say so you say, well, I, I, uh, I do celebrate Christmas and I eat only vegetables. I'm not in trouble, am I? Well, no. But you should be about proving that God has welcomed you. Prove that God has welcomed you. That you stand in the right sta place. Has he made you stand? His own master is able to make him stand. Has it happened? Are you developing the kind of walk in Christ that those things without the temptation of violating verse 1, where you become a legalist trying to stop other people from eating meat. But you're just proving that God has made you stand the way you are. Where we have, And you keep the Sabbath, don't keep the Sabbath, whatever. Has God, has you, have you come out of it with thanksgiving, not with a war against those who hold the opposite viewpoint? So then, let us then no more pass judgment on one another, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Now, he, he then lets you know where he's coming from. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. So there. So I get to eat the food. Offer to idols. So shut the heck up. That's his position. I, I get Nothing's unclean. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. You ever hear that Christianity involves relative ethics there it is relative ethics it's relative to the mind of the person it's actually because sin is a state of motivation not as always a state of knowledge I could find myself um, I could find myself um, doing something completely legitimate but because I thought it was wrong, I was in sin doing it. That's what he means by stumbling. Stumbling is not someone in church getting annoyed with you for doing something. They stumbled, but they stumbled into their own sin. Their own sin was, I'm going to be a legalist, and you shouldn't do that because I don't like it. People, when I had long hair, and I was told by various old deacons at my church, that it stumbled them, they were trying to use this passage as a point of leverage by saying, now you've got to do something because you're stumbling me. I said, I don't notice you're growing your hair out. That's stumbling. You, if you thought it was wrong, I know though you do, and I was setting a bad example by my liberty, and you grew your hair out, though you're 67 years old, and bitter, do you... That's the, and, and, and you still thought it was wrong and you did it anyway and you were condemned. Yeah, then I would have to cut my hair. This is the sin of, is an injury done to a weaker person on, where he's being drawn into something he's not ready or the, doesn't have the faith to do, doesn't have the understanding to do. We know that Paul and Christ agree about this. In Mark 7, I have it here on the side on the back page, he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a man from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach, and so passes on? Thus he declared all foods clean. Colossians 2, why do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things which all perish as they're used according to human precepts and doctrines. 
1 Timothy 4. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by giving heed to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons, through the pretensions of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage, and enjoin abstinence from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Not everybody in the faith is strong in the faith regarding those things that have been given to us by God. The position, the objective truth, as Paul said, in the Lord Jesus is that nothing is unclean. That is the official position. But not all, the Lord is wonderfully gracious to all of us who have different positions or different ways of living and have not yet come to that knowledge. The Holy Spirit is there to make you good, not hold correct positions. Eventually, it'd be good for you to hold a correct position. But he picked you up where you were, and you got to learn that stuff. you got to learn more about what it is, uh, that the freedom you have. You don't want to step into the freedom before your faith allows you to. If your brother is being injured by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. Do not let what you eat cause the ruin of one for whom Christ died. The death of Christ applies to that man with the wrong idea about food. The grace of God saved the guy with the wrong idea about the Sabbath. He didn't have to have the correct idea about the Sabbath to get saved. Whichever side of that view you're on. And if I let a holiday or a burger upset the situation that Christ is trying to make peace in, remember how we're supposed to be obeying the commands of the state in order to make peace by our consciences and our, to not be punished for what we do? Well, here's where we're, we're, we're keeping the order of the church. But I want you to know what is good here. What's the true thing? And that's the temptation of the people who know what's good and are able to practice it, is they come back with a despising on those who are not. <coughs> so do not let, verse 16, your good be spoken of as evil. There's two ways your good could be spoken of as evil. If you do the wrong, whatever your good is, if you whichever the good is keeping the Sabbath, not keeping the Sabbath the, the good is spoken of as evil when you become a little give you a little hissy hiss about it whenever it comes up you're fighting it, you're not welcoming them for, you're only welcome for disputes over opinions your position is going to be viewed negatively Second is this, and Paul, as I've mentioned in Colossians and in Timothy and in um, uh, Galatians, Paul's not silent about the truth of what, what's the actual truth. He's not silent about where the right position is. He tells you, I'm convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean. You don't let someone who has the weaker position define what Christianity is. You don't let them speak of your good as if it were evil. But you also don't step into a behavior that gives them really good claim that you're evil. In the uh, box on the side, Corinthians 8, he's, he, this is why I say this is, uh, if, if you could get it out of the, the Romans uh, 14 passage, but here he says it very clearly, however not all possess this knowledge, but some, through being hitherto accustomed to idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God, we're no better off, worse off if we do not eat, no better off if we do. Only take care, lest this liberty of yours somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you, a man of knowledge, at table in an idol's temple, might he not be encouraged? If his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols. And so, by your knowledge, this weak man is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brethren and wounding their conscience, when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food is the cause of my brother's falling, I will never eat meat, unless I cause my brother to fall. The brother, the peace of the church, the unity of the saints, the gospel of Jesus Christ is a bigger thing to protect than your right 
to eat certain things that you're at liberty to eat. But that's different <coughs> than those who enjoin abstinence from certain foods. They're not the weak. The people that are the weak are the people who look up to you and admire you and they came out of that worldly situation and they, and they see you having a few beers down at the garden. And you invite them along. And they came out of a wild fraternity life and, and, and they, they, they... Or they come out of a very restrictive conservative Christian life and never had a beer in their life and here they are of age and they only have one beer but they feel so like they lied to their parents. They, gotta, they, they just feel like their whole world just fell apart because they lips that touch liquor so touch wine will never touch mine. They have these <laughs> violations of things that have just happened. That's what we're talking about, the stumbling. Insisting on your rights makes liberty look bad. I had it, my mother, while she was alive, grew up uh, with alcoholic siblings and... Um, became a Christian in her teens and then went off to Prairie Bible Institute, which is very conservative. And uh, I grew up in a home that never, I didn't even know what a beer can looked like, uh, let alone anything else. And there were not even playing cards in the house. Uh, it was just, and my mother knew this was true and knew that it wasn't righteousness that she was talking about. My father always had the view, he never drank, well, he has ever drank, drunk anything. But if a non-Christian set a beer in front of him, he'd thank God for it and drink it, you know, because he follows the scriptures. But my mother could and doesn't mind seeing other Christians drink, but really minded seeing her kids drink. And your heart needs to go to something like that and say, "How do I? How do I deal with this?" Uh, there's some grace now. It was not that was not even then was not a stumbling situation. Just made my mother feel bad, so we never, we always hid the bottles when she come over. They were rolling around the floor. <laughs> Pick them up quick. Um, but even that's not a stumbling situation. She wasn't tempted to go out and get plowed and find herself condemned because she had imitated her favorite son. For the kingdom of God is not food and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Once you figure out what you're supposed to be doing, and you say, you know, I've got to spend a lot of time figuring out what this doing of it was going to occupy me, how it's going to occupy me, righteousness, peace, and joy. He who thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. He who thus serves Christ. <clears throat> Righteousness, peace, and joy. A lot of other things. I mean, if only, sometimes you, when you'd see the Christians back in the 1600s in England gathering armies together to shoot guns at each other because of differences of opinion about the nature of church order. And we maybe saw one vicar, like Richard Baxter or something like that, going, I don't think this is right. Because he was, he concentrated on righteousness, peace, and joy. He, the alarms were going off. Every other minister was picking sides. Every other minister was on the field of battle. Christians, when you think we have bad church splits nowadays, you know, cannons were involved. <laughs> So if you put the right things where they belong, let the government run the government. You've got some stuff to do. You've got to get out of bed. You've got to avoid that fake kind of Christian teaching that always is trying to dominate those who disagree with you. You're supposed to be after righteousness, peace, and joy. Because that's what God accepts, right? That's what gets proved by men. Let us then pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, the right position. But it is wrong for anyone whom to make others fall by what he eats. It is, it is right not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that makes your brothers stumble. 
the faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Remember, this thing that you're, you're discovering, your seeking of God, your pursuit of Him, those things are really, in a, in a modern sort of way, I, I'm against individualism, but you are an individual. And these are the choices only the individual can make. The child can't make it by the choice of the parent. Uh, the group can't make it by the choice of the church and the nation. You can't baptize a whole nation. You can't just... The faith you have, keep between yourself and God. Happy is he who has no reason to judge himself for what he approves. Are you in the position that what you know that you're allowed to be and do is well within the confines of your measure and the strength of your faith? You're capable of thanking God for it. You're not. You're not in any doubt. You're not just trying to prove that you fit into that kind of loose college town type of Christianity because that's what they're all doing. They've all got pipes. They all drink oatmeal stout. They're all... But he who has doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not act from faith. But whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Now, I, I don't know that you want to take that as a guide to all things. That all things in every way, if it doesn't proceed from faith, it's evil. You know, um, you, you, then you start becoming very particular. Is he sitting in this chair because of faith? Well, not faith in God, but faith in the chair. Is it kept from being sin because I have faith? Oh, don't go spreading it to what it is not about. You're spreading it to those things that you wondered but not convinced was okay. And you went ahead and did it. You had doubts about it. And you went ahead and did it. That meant that you were going to serve something that wasn't God you knew. It was going to serve you. It wasn't going to serve something you knew. You had faith that God says, yes, this is to be received with thanksgiving. You weren't convinced of that. So you did it thinking that God might not be pleased. And you did it. It becomes sin. You do not, you're not acting from faith. Faith, the measure of faith you get informs you more and more as to the mind of God of what is allowable in this world. Tammy had a great testimony tonight with people she was clients, explaining to them the nature of the great joy and liberty in Christ. One was a Hindu and one was a Jew, both from Philly. And uh, they were like news to them. They had never heard this kind of Christianity before. You want to be the kind of person who grows into that not as a stumbling down the stairs where you're constantly convicted about what you thought you had liberty to do, but where you discover in the mind of God and Christ the good gifts he has given his people and you are able to enjoy them with thanksgiving. Um, happy is the man who has no reason to judge himself for what he approves. All right. That's the end. Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're grateful. Very grateful. This faith of yours, son, is can be complicated sometimes, but it really is only complicated because we find ourselves struggling against it. Or throwing things in the way, or the lim things that are our limits, not yours, that keep us from functioning correctly. Lord, thank you for this teaching on our how much ordinate value we give these different things and where our hearts should really be. In your son's name, amen. Mm -hmm.